All right, thank you so much for joining us for today's webinar, Living Six Feet Apart, Experiences with COVID-19 from the CF Community. I'm Gretchen Winter, your moderator. I am an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and I focus on care of patients with cystic fibrosis and bronchiectasis. We're joined by our panelists today. Dr. Patrick Flume is a professor of medicine and pediatrics and director of the MUSC Cystic Fibrosis Center. He has long been involved in CF clinical research and is currently the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Cystic Fibrosis. Dr. Albert Farrow is Vice President of Clinical Affairs at the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. Prior to joining the foundation in 2016, he was a professor of pediatrics at Washington University in St. Louis, where he co-led the CF Therapeutic Development Center. And Ginger Birnbaum is actively involved as a community advocate and fundraiser alongside the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. After her son was diagnosed with the disease at birth, she quickly learned that partnering with the CF Foundation would give her child the best chance at a long and healthy life. So thank you so much for joining us today, and we'll go ahead and get started with the presentation. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for the kind introduction, and thank you for this opportunity to share with you the impact of COVID-19 on people with cystic fibrosis. Today, we're dividing this talk into three broad topics. First, the CF Foundation's role in supporting the CF community, and I will get that started. Dr. Patrick Flume will discuss COVID's impact on CF care centers. And then Ginger Birnbaum will share experience of the CF community and the COVID's impact on individuals with CF. Next slide, please. Now, I just want to start with a very brief description of the CF Foundation to, to provide context to, to what we'll be discussing. The foundation was established in the mid-1950s, in fact, 65 years ago, it's, it's our 65th anniversary, by parents who refused to accept the dire prognosis given to them by their physician that their child would not likely live to see school age. And then you can see that poster that the little boy is holding up saying, CF, a major killer of our children. At the time, the mission was pretty straightforward, to assure the development of the means to cure and control CF. This did not only include funding research to discover new therapies, but also exploring ways to improve care delivery and clinical outcomes. Next slide, please. By 1960, it was recognized that expertise from a variety of disciplines would be essential to optimally care for people with a multi-system disease. A care center committee recommended that all CF care centers have multidisciplinary teams. And one year later, the CF Foundation accredited the first two CF programs. And you can see how on this map, that network has grown over time. Now, sites are accredited through the CF Foundation, but importantly, by a committee of their peers. There are site visits that occur at least every five years, more frequently as needed. And presently on this map, there are 287 total programs between pediatric adult and affiliates. Next slide, please. 
1964, the foundation provided Dr. Warren Warwick at Minnesota with a budget of $10,000 to collect reports on every patient treated at the time 31 CF centers in the US. Because Dr. Leroy Matthews, who was in Cleveland at the time, was asserting mortality rates of 2% annually for people with CF at their center compared to national rates of 20%. Lo and behold, the data indeed demonstrated a median age of death of 21 years of age for people with CF being cared for at Rainbow Babies in Cleveland compared to three years nationally. So the creation of the registry was a key milestone, helping us not only understand the natural history of CF over time, but also helped us define best practices, but importantly, as by that example, exposed marked variations in outcomes where the gap between the top center and the remaining centers of the network was, was so significant. So the foundation's leadership, care center providers began asking the important question, why is survival better at some centers when everyone is supposedly using the same standards of care? Clearly developing standards of care alone and disseminating clinical care guidelines and health outcome data, although essential and things we still do today alone were not enough to improve clinical outcomes. So this led to the early adoption of quality improvement processes. I think before a lot of people could spell QI. And it was championed by Dr. Bruce Marshall, who's our chief medical officer, as it was clear to him that years of life could be added by just enhancing care delivery. And more recently, and a growing focus on expanding a culture of patient and family partnerships, moving away from that finger wagging to having more empathy and understanding. Next slide, please. So the, the expectation that each of our centers would practice quality improvement was one step towards changing the culture. A framework entitled the Seven Worthy Goals was developed in 2005 to provide a set of objectives that centers could strive for. And, the, and these in, included uh, nutritional goals, goals for access to therapies. I just wanna highlight two of, of, of these goals uh, as being very relevant to what we'll be discussing and to our response to the crisis uh, that COVID generated. And the first of these goals reminds us that we're here to serve those who suffer from this disease. And, and I'll just read it along with you, which is patients and families are full partners with the cystic fibrosis care team in managing this chronic disease. Information and communication will be given in an open and trusting environment so that every patient and family will be able to be involved in care at the level they desire. Care will be respectful of individual patient preferences, needs, and values. This goal helps keeps us to keep grounded. I know it helps keep me grounded and serves as a beacon when challenged by crisis such as the pandemic. The second goal has served our community well during this time of physical distancing. And that is clinicians and patients will be well-informed partners in reducing acquisition of respiratory pathogens. Our patients are familiar with face masks. They're not afraid of them. 
and are used to maintaining physical distancing. That's why the talk is entitled Six Feet Apart. Next slide, please. So let's now fast forward to 2020. In mid-March, we recommended to clinics, patients, and families that all routine quarterly CF clinic visits be converted to telehealth. Our multidisciplinary teams had to pivot quickly, just as many of you had to, to obtain and implement the technology. To assist the care centers in continuing to deliver high quality specialized care, we began to explore the possibility of supplying individuals with CF with home spirometers. Now we talked with many vendors and, and Bruce Marshall actually got to play our consumer reports tester. These devices were mailed to his home and, and he got to play with them. I'm probably gonna violate HIPAA here, but I'm sure you'll all be reassured to know his lung function is perfectly normal. And we were looking for certain things. We, we were looking for quality devices with reproducible results at a low cost because we were projecting that we'd be buying thousands of these. And from someone we felt would be a good partner where we could be assured that there was adequate inventory. And, and, and that was no small feat. As you may remember in April, there were a lot of supply chain uh, issues uh, with Europe and China being virtually all shut down. So 90% of our CF centers have taken advantage of this program and over 10,000 devices have been shipped to patients. Our COVID medical advisory group, which I'll describe in, in just a few minutes, developed recommendations around which patients should be prioritized, but each program determined how they would allot uh, or allocate their allotment. In addition, a robust effort was launched to help our CF programs deliver high quality multidisciplinary care through telehealth. Next slide, please. So the, the CF care index, initially called the telehealth index, is, is the slide that you're seeing in front of you. And I, and I know it's busy and I don't expect you to memorize it, but the business, business only reflects the all out intense effort that took place within our community to assure that everyone was comfortable in providing high quality care through the telehealth platform. Each of these resources or each of these links that you see go to resources in our library so that care teams had the ability to pull these up. It provides guidance around how to do so many different things, including pre-visit planning, uh, how to share information among the team that are in disparate locations, and so much more that I, I really don't have time to, to detail. Suffice it to say, it's a valuable roadmap helping our teams navigate this crisis. Next slide, please. Additionally, we knew how vital effective communication would be in managing the crisis, and we were very deliberate on leveraging existing channels and developing or expanding into other channels. It has been so important to remind people, especially during this time of isolation, that they're not alone. So one of the first things we actually did was convene this medical advisory group I mentioned before. 
And, and this was an acknowledgement uh, by those of us at the foundation that we're not on the front lines. And, and we really benefit from hearing from the people who are experiencing this firsthand and to understand the scale of the challenges that are, are being faced. The other part of this is, you know, communication is always bilateral. And, and having this, this group, which actually both uh, Patrick and Ginger are a part of, so it is, it's very much multidisciplinary and includes uh, patients and families. But having this group to act as a sounding board and allow us an opportunity to bounce ideas off of in, in terms of next steps or, or potential interventions and, and so on has been tremendously valuable to us and, and, and hopefully to the community. As well as leveraging these existing networks. So we have a CF learning network, which has 39 CF programs uh, presently participating. Uh, they, they work on quality improvement skills and use learning laboratories to advance care delivery and, and expand that out to the wider CF care network, as well as the regional dissemination network, which is a, a group of CF programs and transplant programs that began their work on improving the transplant referral process. When the pandemic hits, these networks were invaluable in allowing people to share experiences, share stories, ask questions of each other, how did you solve this? How did you approach that? I was so impressed that in the spring when New York City was experiencing its surge, uh, this was a purely optional meeting. And a team from New York, in fact, six members of the team from New York were on that call during that hellacious surge that, that went on because of the value they found in being able to communicate with their peers and colleagues. And in that same vein, we've established listservs and open forums for the multidisciplinary teams. We've developed and disseminated clinical considerations around subjects such as reopening of schools, reopening of clinics, uh, CF newborn screening and sweat testing uh, during the COVID crisis, and, and so on. We've held national town halls to communicate with the CF community, and we facilitated local town halls. So CF centers, CF teams, could communicate with their own patients and families. We've developed the COVID Q&A page on cff.org, and we publish a weekly digest, which provides updates as to uh, registry data, case counts, uh, new resources, and new information. Next slide, please. And then research. Research is in our DNA. Uh, we, we continue to actively try to find a cure for cystic fibrosis. But again, when, when the pandemic hit, uh, it certainly caused a fair bit of disruption in, in many, if not all, research laboratories. And we, we have been very flexible with our investigators in terms of our funding, delaying start times, uh, understanding the lack of preliminary data. So we, we've tried to be, again, very flexible uh, to try and, and help our investigators continue their important work. And just recently, we released an RFA to evaluate the impact of SARS-CoV-2 infection in CF. And uh, some of the questions we're hoping uh, that we'll, we'll get to answer with this research include determining if CF cells are more or less susceptible to the virus, 
identify and evaluate CF-specific immune responses. And lastly, understand how common CF medications may alter biological responses to the virus. Next slide, please. And the same as researchers in our DNA, we are always advocating for the CF community and for individuals with, with CF. And we continue to do so. Again, in the spring, when there was so much concern as to whether or not there would be enough mechanical ventilators, enough critical care beds, uh, we, we were out there voicing the needs and the viewpoints of people with CF around standards of care. We've advocated for accommodations at workplaces and at school for people with CF. We've advocated for our care centers and for fair compensation for telehealth visit, as well as for state licensure issues as many of our patients cross state lines to get to their CF programs and so much more. Next slide, please. So I'd like to, to finish with, with uh, discussing a little bit about our crown jewel, the, re the registry. Uh, during this crisis, we developed an additional case report form for programs to enter more granular detail on individuals with CF suspected of having COVID. Now, Dr. Flume is going to share some of that data with you. So I just want to briefly highlight the global effort at understanding the impact of COVID in people with CF. So an initial brief report was published in April describing the first 40 cases of COVID from eight participating countries, including the United States. At that time, no deaths had been reported. And in fact, the, the report itself was somewhat reassuring and encouraging, raising hopes that the outcomes for those with CF infected with SARS-CoV-2 may not be as dire as we initially feared or anticipated. Now, the collection of, of that global data is continuing and has expanded to include 19 countries. And through mid-June, 181 individuals with CF had been reported. 32 of them had uh, received a transplant. This data is presently under review at a journal, so I can't share very much, but what I can share is that outcomes still appear to be less severe than we initially anticipated. There have been ICU admissions, and unfortunately there have been deaths. Not surprisingly, but the, the impact of COVID is seemingly worse in those who are transplant recipients, those with uh, poorer lung function, and those with advanced age. In other words, people with CF are a vulnerable population and are at risk for poor outcomes from this virus. I will now pass the controls over to Dr. Flume, who will detail the impact of COVID on CF care programs. Thank you. Thank you, Al. Uh, now my task is to try and describe the impact of COVID-19 on the care centers. We can start with the first slide. Um, and from these, I'm going to be pulling from registry data and the first observation I wanted to demonstrate is the real heterogeneity of the approach that centers and states took with monitoring for COVID-19. Uh, in the absence of a national uh, response, each state was sort of on their own to decide what they would do, and the same went for CF centers. What you're seeing here is the percent of the patients at those centers in those states that were actually tested for COVID-19. 
And so you can see that for some states, the numbers are quite low. For others, they're quite high at over 20%, suggesting that those are centers that likely adopted a, a process of, uh, of requiring a COVID test prior to being seen in clinic or before having uh, pulmonary function testing. Um, but you can see there's quite a heterogeneous approach to testing. The next slide. There's two different points being demonstrated on this slide. On the left, uh, in the chart there, looking at those patients who were tested for COVID-19, what percent of those who actually tested positive? And you could see that roughly that was about 5%. Uh, and for a long time, for a lot of states, that was sort of the average rate of positive tests. I can tell you in South Carolina, we were below 4 or 5% for the early phase of this. And now we're currently in the 12 to 15% of tests that are positive in our overall testing. In the right are the percent of patients at those centers who tested positive. And consistent with what Al had already shown, you see that it's a pretty low rate in terms of the number of patients who were actually infected, roughly less than 1% across the country. Next slide. If you look at the patients who tested positive for COVID-19 and try to look at some of those risk factors that were associated with worse outcomes, we can look at those in the right column, looking at their uh, race and ethnicity. Uh, there was a little bit of an increase in those that were Hispanic compared to the overall population in the 2019 data set, which is in the center column. You can look at those who died, uh, roughly 1%, two, two patients have died, uh, not terribly different from the overall mortality in the registry of last year. Um, a lower proportion of those are pediatric, but as you can see, those with, with advanced lung disease, it's a little bit higher proportion and then no uh, clear association with obesity. The next slide, please. And now a bit of the timing. And there, although these dates are a little bit different by various states, this is probably pretty typical of what we see. In South Carolina, our schools were closed on March 15th, and all non-essential businesses were closed on the 24th at March. But it wasn't until the early uh, part of April in which we finally had a stay-at-home order. So in our center, we were forced to move to 100% telemedicine somewhere in the middle to the latter part of March. Next slide, please. So I just wanna put a little perspective on the impact this has had on the centers. And what you're seeing here are the number of encounters. These are outpatient encounters in 2019 by week. So the numbers across the bottom of the screen are each week and week 36 is roughly the end of August. And you can see that although there are a couple of dips likely related with holidays and summer vacations, uh, what you see is there are a pretty stable number of encounters across the country in 2019. If you advance to the next slide, you can see that in the early part of 2020, it was actually a little bit pretty similar in terms of what it was compared to 2019. Maybe a slight reduction and there might be a trikafta effect there, which we'll get to. And then advance to the next slide, we see the COVID-19 impact and then the next slide shows 
what follows. And so what you see is the immediate plummet in overall number of visits that slowly then seemed to recover, but still was a reduction in visits overall. And that tailing at the end, I think, probably is more to do with a delay in reporting than an actual reduction in visits. So you can see that there was that immediate recovery or immediate downfall, but some recovery, but not back to the baseline. But those visits are all outpatient visits. So they're, they're not all just in-person visits. So the next slide demonstrates the separation of those in 2019. So the uh, beige bar at the top represents the in-person visits and the blue bar at the bottom are other, which would be telephone or telemedicine visits, which you could see were roughly about 250 visits every week. And that was sort of consistent throughout 2019. Uh, advanced to the next slide and you can see going up to uh, the COVID impact, again, pretty similar in terms of what you saw in the, out, the other visits, the telemedicine or phone visits. And then the next slide sort of tells the story. And what you see is that in-person visits came to a screeching halt, uh, very low number of visits comparable to what had been previously those phone or televisits. The red line shows a marked increase in the number of those phone or televisits and then began to decline as there were more in-person visits. And then you sort of get to where it's about 50-50, that the number of in-person visits is comparable to those that are in televisits. So you can see the impact in terms of what was happening in the outpatient scenario. The next slide demonstrates what we see in terms of pulmonary exacerbations. So what you see here are the data from those patients 12 years and older looking at pulmonary exacerbations defined as intravenous antibiotic uh, therapies, either giving in the home or in the hospital setting. And what you can see is that there was a pretty consistent rate of hospitalizations throughout 2019, till of course Christmas, uh, and a pretty stable rate of um, outpatient home visits. If we then look at this, you can see there's a marked reduction. Advance to the next slide. Some of that reduction happened before COVID. And this probably is the effect of having the triple combination, highly effective CFTR modulators. So we already had seen a, a big reduction in both the hospitalizations or home treatment for pulmonary exacerbations. And then once COVID hit, there was an additional decline. So that's in the 12 years and older. These are the subjects who are eligible for uh, Trikafta. But in those who are younger, who theoretically should not be on Trikafta, you can see that it's pretty much all been a COVID effect in terms of the reduction uh, in the numbers of events. There was perhaps a slight reduction hospitalizations in February, um, but then markedly diminished in March and then April and has been fairly consistent. So there's been this effect. The next slide. So there's a reduction in the exacerbations uh, being treated with IV overall. Uh, there clearly was probably a trikafta effect in the, those over 12 years of age, but further reduction that we have to attribute to the pandemic. And there are a number of hypotheses that we could uh, propose to account for this. 
And perhaps it's because of these infection control measures, a, a, an extension of this lockdown that may have reduced exposures to other viruses, and perhaps that's preventing these events. I suppose we could imagine that, that patients have become increasingly adherent to their other therapies. Although from what my patients tell me after the, being on Trikafta, I'm guessing that's not the case. Um, or maybe the patients are just not reporting their symptoms or they're not being seen in clinic. And we know that one of the greatest risk factors for an IV treatment is being seen by a physician. So what we hope is that our patients are not suffering and avoiding uh, interventions that would be necessary. Next slide, please. This is a little more detail about the impact that we can get from the registry. And there's a lot to digest here, but let me walk you through it very, e obviously each row is each month through August. In the parentheses of each column are the numbers from 2019. And then to the left of that are the numbers or proportions from 2020. And these data will be presented at the upcoming North American CF meeting. What you can see in the parentheses of each column, whether I'm looking at office visits, the ratio of in-person visits, the height, the FEV1, weight, microbiology, or medications, pretty consistent reporting from month to month. 90% of the, of the visits were in-person. 90% of them had a height entered. 75% had an FEV1 entered and so on. But if you look at the numbers on the left of each column, what you can see, for example, in the office visit ratio, that in March, 68% of the visits were in person. Remember, this was the latter half of March when things kicked in, 9% in April, and then began to climb back up to where it's about 50% of visits are in person. But what you see is a reduction in numbers that are being submitted. Uh, values that are important, like height. Um, FEV1 dropped to 5% in April, uh, reported, has climbed back to 43%. Uh, and we're going to have to learn how Holmes barometry um, affects the results that we get in our data analysis. And so what we're going to see as time moves on is this reduction in the number of data points to allow us to do analyses in the registry, let alone provide uh, care to our patients. Next slide. You can see how things happened in our own center. This is looking at the adult clinic and up prior to the COVID-19 uh, lockdown, you could see that all of our visits in the clinic were in person. We weren't doing any televisits uh, for our routine care. We were using telemedicine primarily for our QI projects in nutrition and respiratory therapy. But then you see very quickly, we had to go to uh, mostly phone, then transition to mostly tele, and then uh, have climbed back to a combination of in-person and tele uh, visits to where roughly 50% of our visits are um, in-person. And we've re we think that we've achieved what we would just call this hybrid uh, clinic uh, in which we're trying to determine what needs to happen in person and what could be done uh, in the home setting. But then the, the, you get to the question about the quality of care. How do we feel that we're doing in providing what we still value as the team-based approach to care? And so from the very beginning, as we were testing out platforms and working on our communication systems, um, 
we were tracking this as we would any other quality improvement project. And I think what you can appreciate uh, on the panel on the right is that, I won't tell you we got better, but we certainly felt like we were getting better and having a greater sense of satisfaction in our interactions uh, functioning as a team. And if you go to the next slide, that team process is not merely just in the clinic, it's also in our routine meetings. And so we are still holding our twice weekly uh, pre and post clinic uh, meetings and our monthly center meetings where pediatrics and the adult team come together. Uh, and we've learned how to maintain that level of communication. Um, we're not always smiling like this, uh, but we um, have found a way to try to work together. And what our hope is, is that the, on the patient and family side that they are appreciating that same level of team uh, connection. And so with that, I'll hand it off to Ginger. Thank you, Patrick. And thank you all for, for having us today and, um, and for having me. So I'm Ginger Birnbaum. I live in Tennessee and I am the mother of two precious children that you can see here, not the tallest one, that's my husband. Um, and our pandemic puppy, <laughs> Cash. But uh, this was actually a graduation that we had to do in, I guess, late July. So that was a wild experience for my daughter to graduate from elementary school. Um, so she's pictured here, she's 11 years old. And then I have a little boy, King, who is eight. And he is our CF fighter, and he was our entree to the World of Cystic Fibrosis Foundation and, um, and all that we've been up to these last eight years. And then Emma Virginia, we're so proud of. She is just an advocate extraordinaire, not only for her brother, but also for the community. So what is my involvement with the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation? So clearly I am a CF parent, so I have that real you know, daily experience, but I'm also a community advocate and a fundraiser, both on our, our local level and the national level. And I also have the pleasure of serving with Dr. Sparrow and Flume on the COVID medical advisory group. So I've um, been able to see a lot through these last couple of months through that work. And it's been incredibly just impressive and, and fulfilling to be a part of. So what is life like during a pandemic for, I guess, the mom of a child with a chronic illness and just managing family throughout all of this? I think we all would agree that this has been a crazy time for everyone, but I think especially for us, there are just things that are even, um, even stronger and, and harder. So there's been these feelings of isolation, confusion. It has truly been an emotional roller coaster. And then there's been an overload on information. And outside of that, there's a strong sense of frustration with the disinformation and how that is passed around. Um, because, of course, we feel that we need to be able to depend on our community um, to keep us well here locally if we are, you know, going to happen to be around someone. So we definitely want to be sure that people are getting the correct information and um, can be the best stewards of community. So when my son was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, 
it made us very aware of germs and we learned to live life differently. So the title of this talk is Living Six Feet Apart. And that's, you know, King has really been doing that uh, since he was very little and therefore our family does that. For instance, during flu season, we find ourselves being very mindful of who we're around, where we're going. Do we go to school if flu's, you know, going around? So being mindful about germs and viruses is nothing new to us. And we're not the only ones, you know, in the community like that. People in the CF community are very careful about who they might be around and that sort of thing. On the other hand, people with cystic fibrosis are not supposed to be together um, physically. So never really do we wanna be inside together and even outside, if we happen to come together, there should be this six feet of space. So being mindful about that space just between CFers has always been something that, um, that we've been informed about and cautious about in our community. Next slide, please. So here you see the mission of the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. And I put this here because I, I wanted to be able to read it with you and also just really highlight that the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation truly leads the way in our community. So that mission is to cure cystic fibrosis and to provide all people with CF the opportunity to lead long, fulfilling lives by funding research and drug development, partnering with the CF community, and advancing high quality specialized care. So when I had King, he was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis at a month old. It took a little bit of time for us to get that final diagnosis after newborn screening. I immediately researched foundations and resources and what things were out there, you know, even just on the internet that we could tap into and learn more about. I had some background in medical foundation fundraising, so I knew, you know, a little bit about what I wanted to look for and what might be impressive if there was to be something out there that our family could really hang our hat on and, and put our trust in. So you can imagine that I was thrilled to find the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation where both philanthropy and science connect. Um, with a drug development pipeline. I was blown away to see that all of this was happening with this disease that I really knew nothing about until I started researching it. So immediately our family got very, very involved and invested with the foundation. So then one month after his diagnosis, Kaleidico was brought to market. And this was a huge breakthrough, not only in the CF community, but just in the medical landscape in general, because it was such a big deal to have a drug like this. So if you don't know about Kaleidico, in mom talk, um, I can tell you that um, the way I look at it is that it is a drug that goes to the cell, to the cellular level to correct the mutation. Now, I knew enough at the time to know that this would not benefit King directly because he had different mutations, but we understood that perhaps in the future, another drug could be modeled to benefit King. 
So of course we became even more invested and we watched even more closely all of the things that were happening at the foundation and how we could support those things and partner with the foundation to uh, move more quickly toward that goal. So fast forward about eight years and we're on the horizon of a similar drug for my son that, um, that will help with his mutation. Now he hasn't taken it, so we don't know exactly what that looks like, but there's potential there and we're very excited. There's a lot more work to do, a cure to be found, um, new antibiotics to be discovered, but we're so excited to know that this work and this partnership that we've had with the foundation is leading us now to this moment in time. So it's, um, it's exciting for us and we're looking forward to see what is to come. Cystic fibrosis is a daily battle. Um, there's therapy every single day. There's medications to be taken. There's discomfort for him in his body daily. Um, so it's emotionally exhausting at times, not just for a mother, but um, to watch my child who at times is also emotionally exhausted. So that can be tough, but having a trusted source that partners with patients and families and makes it manageable um, for us to come together really fosters a culture of progress and of hope. And that um, goes a long way getting us day to day for sure. Next slide, please. So why does communication and transparency matter? let me count the ways in the midst of a pandemic who doesn't want communication and transparency and certainly with the patients and families within the cf community um, i can speak on behalf of many of the people that i'm close with in the community and of course for my own family um, this trust gives us a source to look to it takes some of that weight off of our shoulders and in these hard times our community really needed and still needs to be supported in a variety of ways. Everyone was confused, the whole world, right? This was new. We didn't know exactly what this meant for anyone. Um, what would it be like to get this virus? What would it be like to pass it on? Um, and, and ultimately, what would that mean for each person? But certainly in our community, since the lungs are involved, we really needed that guidance on protecting ourselves and protecting our loved ones. So not surprising, the foundation stepped up in the most incredible ways. Um, it was really just, and, and still is, a full frontal just onslaught of figuring out ways to partner together to get communication across channels to find new channels to come up with innovative ways to help people understand what was happening in the world some of those ways were, were mentioned earlier but there were webinars on emotional wellness guidance on going back to school both of which i was able to be a part of you can see me there in that little thumbnail chatting away um, about back to school and what that looks like. You know, it was crazy for everyone, but certainly for those of us that wanted to um, put in place even more physical distancing. 
There were also together weekly updates and that really focused on the latest news, the latest updates. And all of these things were so well publicized so that it really got in front of people and they had the greatest chance to access this information and to continue accessing it with these weekly emails and even on the landing page of cff.org which is our website that we use um, this great Q&A piece that's constantly updated that now we've learned hey we can check in there to see if there is any new information that we need to be kept abreast of so Ultimately, I think that this communication, this level of transparency gave our community, the CF community, both on the foundation side and the patient and family side, the opportunity to band together and to support one another. Um, also, just feeling empowered during a time like this, really during any time, um, makes things less scary and it gives you a better chance to meet your goals and to be successful with what you're looking for. And I think, I know that within our community that has truly been felt. Um, and we're so grateful for that um, focus on communication, but especially with transparent communication where we know that this source is one that we can really trust in a time that is confusing and chaotic. Next slide, please. So here you have from care center to telehealth. People with cystic fibrosis are typically seen four times a year um, at a specialized care center. So there are quarterly visits. And you heard earlier about the care center model where there's this specialized accredited care that people see a psychologist, a pharmacist, um, physical therapist, respiratory therapist, pulmonologist, sometimes GI, sometimes ENT gets involved. Um, this very multifaceted approach to taking care of the whole person with cystic fibrosis because it has been seen to be so successful, which is something that CF parents, um, I know myself, is well versed on. I know what this highly specialized accredited care means for my child. So what do you do when you can't go in person to clinic? What does that mean? Does that mean that there's a steep decline in health? How do you pick that up and forge that gap? And, and where do you go from there? For us, thankfully, we had telehealth because I can tell you, we would not have gone to clinic, um, especially when all of this first started happening. Um, skipping a clinic visit is not something that we do. And I don't think we would have considered that to be a situation like that, but it just felt that the risk outweighed the benefit to go out in public at that time when telehealth first became available. So we were so thankful that we could still see our team at Vanderbilt and get the highly specialized care we needed from these people, even if it was online, just to keep that communication line open, to keep eyes on my child meant a lot to me and just to know that we were continuing our care instead of putting a pause on it. Uh, that means a lot with cystic fibrosis. So it's, it's good to keep the care consistent, but uh, another, I guess, funny note to make would be that the silver lining is that we bonded in a different way with our care center and with our team. 
usually a visit at home might be reserved for a close friend, right? You don't just invite anyone into your home um, and certainly not into your most personal spaces. But with telehealth now, we've seen our care team um, at their homes and they've seen us at ours. We've had dogs barking in the background and children throwing fits and all of these different things I think that have brought us closer together and personally, it seems like that's really going to benefit us when we do start going back to clinic. So I think that's just another extra thing that has been positive about telehealth. I think now, though, the anxiety really is, will we keep telehealth? Will this communication line be available? Even if right now numbers are looking a little bit better and maybe we could go back to clinic, what happens in three months if telehealth is still not available and things are looking bad and we really need to see our care team. So that's something that I, I know our care team is focused on keeping telehealth an option. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation is advocating to keep telehealth an option. And you better bet that patients and families are right there alongside also advocating to keep telehealth an option so that we can continue our care and, and not put a pause on it because it is so valuable. Another really cool thing about our care centers in this time is that the foundation chapters, which are really just local arms of the National Foundation that focus on fundraising and different support systems, um, they came together with our care centers and produced these kind of mini webinars or question and answer sessions on a local level. And then in our area, we even had um, people do kind of like a minute catch on masking or something like that. So it was really great to see them come together. Next slide, please. So patients, families, and foundation, you've heard me mention this several times now. Um, and surely you've gotten the message that this is truly um, a symbiotic relationship. Um, we function all together and focus on working alongside one another to meet goals, both in research and development, in fundraising, in support of care, um, and in support of the whole patient. So it is a wonderful relationship to have when it comes to a foundation. This is unique. Um, that you would have uh, families so, so involved and even influencing more day-to-day -day things, I think, than in most other places. So that gives us a lot of strength going forward, knowing that that kind of care is available and that focus is something that is at the very heart of the mission of the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. Personally, this has not been proven, but it's my own theory. Um, empowered patients and families are more likely to invest in their health. I know that it has, our being empowered has given us a greater hold on King's health. And for that, we are just very grateful and very happy to be in this position where we have a foundation that supports our child so much and gives us the opportunity to also support our community. So thank you all so much for, um, for listening in and, and learning a little bit more about our story with cystic fibrosis. I'll pass it back to Gretchen now. Okay, thanks, Ginger. Um, we have a few minutes for questions now. If anyone has a specific question, please feel free to type it in the Q&A um, box on the bottom of your Zoom screen. 
Otherwise, I'll go ahead and get started with a few other questions. Um, for all of you guys, patients with cystic fibrosis have long been told to maintain their distance from other people with cystic fibrosis and from other people with other illnesses. How do you think um, having that background has affected their ability to adapt to social distancing during this pandemic? Well, I think Ginger can probably answer that question better than any of us, but my experience talking with our patients is yes, they are more attuned to infection control measures and, and uh, trying to avoid certain contacts and so forth, but that doesn't make them any, more any less vulnerable to the social, sense of social isolation and, and miss missing the other thing, parts of their life where they can interact with people. Yeah, and I would just add that, um, and it's actually something I was I was going to say and, and forgot to mention, but I think that initially when everyone decided that quarantine was the best avenue, it really was a sense of kind of relief, like, oh, look, all of these people are doing what we already know how to do. This is a sense of normalcy, um, and it was pretty comforting to see people taking those measures. But then, and it's something I think important to keep in mind for patients that may have also gone through this, then when people decided, oh, look, it's okay, let's get back to life, um, especially for us in Tennessee, that happened pretty quickly. Um, that, was, that was hard, and that certainly added into that sense of an emotional roller coaster that there was this kind of place of comfort and then it kind of changed very quickly. So I think, you know, from that standpoint, it was it was difficult. Now, yeah. oh, go ahead. I, I I would just just add this is this has obviously been a long haul for for all of us. We, as as Ginger pointed out, part of the multidisciplinary team includes um, mental health specialists, um, psychologists. And, and we, do get, we do get a sense that there are elevated um, stress and anxiety levels uh, within the CF community. I'm not sure it's, it's entirely different from what we're pricing in the, in the broader US population or actually global population around this issue, um, but, but it's, it's, it's been difficult for everyone. Now, you mentioned that while some of the reduction in pulmonary exacerbations we've seen is likely due to trikafta and possibly increased adherence to therapies, it's also possible that some of that is because of underreporting of symptoms or missing spirometry that could be leading to mistreatment for undetected exacerbations. What can we do as providers and patients to minimize that? So it it has long been known that there are some of our patients who uh, delay access to care um, or are reluctant to want to contact their care teams because they know what the response will be. And it might not be a great time to want to do IV antibiotics or to hear that recommendation. I think a lot of this has been what's motivated the CF Foundation's approach to develop this partnership in care. Um, that it's not just a, like a parental decision-making process for, by the care teams, that there really is an engagement. Um, and as we work with our patients to try and help a, a proactive approach, that there might be better times to engage with things than, than others and, and proactively seek out um, amplification of care. 
Um, doing medicine is hard. It was hard before this pandemic. It was hard before Trikafta. I think probably one of the greatest things people were excited about is that they might be liberated from some of these therapies. And the foundation actually had already planned the study to see what therapies could be done without to try and find out what's the safest approach forward with, you know, with, now that we have Trikafta. Um, I think there probably still remain patients who are reluctant to call because they perceive that the responsibility we need to bring you in or we need to um, uh, greater use of, of home therapies or willingness to try and um, do oral antibiotics as opposed to IV antibiotics, which doesn't mean that's the best approach, but it's a, you know, a negotiated approach in the setting of trying to avoid what the pandemic aspects of care. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with, with Patrick. It's about building trusting relationships and uh, proactively we, we've been developing this program partnership enhancement program. Uh, actually, Cindy George at the foundation has been leading it. Uh, many of our programs have already undergone uh, this training and, and many more want to. Uh, it got a little derailed uh, with COVID, but I, I think it'll, it'll restart in a different way. Uh, but it, it really is about building those relationships. Perfect. So the COVID-19 pandemic has drastically increased the use of telemedicine, as we discussed. And cystic fibrosis is relatively unique in that clinic visits are typically multidisciplinary with patients seeing physicians and dietitians and mental health specialists and pharmacists and more. So how have your CF team members adapted to the use of telemedicine for multidisciplinary clinics and what are their perceptions of it? I, I'm going to speak on behalf of my team. I, I don't know that, that we love it, but, they, um, but we've gotten better at it. And we took the approach that we value every single bit of what the team provides. So at no time was there decisions about what are we going to cut out or not do. But I'll put to you, even before the pandemic, we had already begun to discuss how we were going to be, what the future of care would be like um, because as our programs get larger and larger, um, as people coming to clinic is a burden on patients and families. It's, you know, if they live in town, they lose a half day. And if they have to travel great distances, it's a, it's a, they lose a, a day or even two. And so the other part we learned is that we, although we bring this entire team to the clinic, it's a little bit overwhelming. Maybe it's a lot of bit overwhelming, but the, what we don't want to do is that some of the parts that we bring, we don't want it to be lost because it was just too much. So we'd already begun discussing how we might break that apart. And we were already, you know, tinkering with the plans for telemedicine and then COVID just kind of stomped on the gas and said, do it. And so we've adapted to a model in which we can be in the clinic and the patient can be in the clinic or the patient can be at home. Team members could be at home and yet the patient can be in the clinic so that we can move the pads in and out of rooms so they can communicate. And so the key we have is just making sure that in our preclinic planning that we are communicating and then as, as well in the middle of clinic, 
um, it's, it's really amazing how much communication happens because you're face to face that you lose if you're all somewhere else because something comes up and then um, uh, maybe we didn't have a plan for Ginger's to her son to see the dietitian, but something is said that says maybe we need to be pull the dietitian in here. You have to be able to adapt to that. And so um, that's what we've sort of adapted to. And, and I think we're getting pretty good at it. At, at a network level, we, we did send out a state of care survey. Uh, we're in the midst of, of analyzing that data. About half of uh, the respondents, uh, though I, I have to admit, feel that they're not delivering the same quality of care. And, and of those that don't feel that they're delivering the same quality of care, about 40% of them actually lay the blame on, on technology issues. So potentially addressable um, down the road. Only about a fifth feel it's because they're not being able to incorporate the entire multidisciplinary team. So that's, that's actually quite reassuring in, in, in regard to, to uh, your, your question. I think anecdotally, we've been hearing a, a little bit from pediatric programs, um, and, and Ginger may be able to speak to this as well. It, it's, pediatricians are trained to do a lot of physical exam, in a sense, by just observing a child's interactions and, and behaviors. And with telehealth visits, that's not really feasible because the child isn't going to sit in front of a Zoom session for the 20 minutes. So most of that session is really the, the provider interacting with the parent. And the child is off somewhere else in the house. And, and that's a lost opportunity for the pediatrician. So we've heard a lot from patients with CF as well as people in general that they're tired of COVID. They're tired of having to think about it, constantly be on high alert. They're tired of how it's affecting their delivery of care. So what advice do you have for people who are currently struggling with COVID fatigue? I guess I'll go first again. I, I'm tired of it. I think everyone can say that, but then I think of, of things like, um, uh, in World War II, the, the people living in Paris were probably tired of the Germans being there, and that London was probably tired of being bombed, but, and it doesn't just go away. You have to actively do things to fight it, and so we need to take care of each other, and, they, and it's not just the provision of CF care. It's how we advise people about how they deal with the pandemic. And for me, it's the same whether you have CF or you don't have CF. You, you, your job is to make sure you don't spread that virus to someone else. And, and so physical distancing, uh, sanitizer, masks, it's, it's not, it's, it, there should be no argument. It's how we stand up to this enemy and we get through it. Um, I think, you know, I would say, at, at least from my standpoint, and I've, I've even said this to friends not in the CF community, because like Patrick was saying, we're all exhausted um, from having to make all of these decisions. But one thing that really struck me, and it was along the way, one of these webinars or a meeting or something, um, someone said, you know, you can change your mind at any time. If you get into a situation that 
is not good or you thought it was going to be safe, you go and there are people there without a mask, whatever it may be, you're well within your rights to change your mind and say, this isn't a great situation for me. I need to take care of myself. And so finding ways, I think, to empower yourself to take care, I think it lessens the fatigue when it comes to decisions because it's just not quite as hard. Um, You can really assess that risk and just decide what is right for you and your family and go from there. Great. So it can be especially hard to follow guidance on masking and staying isolated with this added pandemic fatigue that people are experiencing. So what advice should we be providing to people on masking and risk assessment in public situations now that we're months into this pandemic? Well, I think what Ginger was alluding to is is that very thing is risk assessment and you can change your mind if you've Um, decided that the risks are greater than you anticipated. And um, I think it's it's safe to say that if if you don't have the virus and I don't have the virus, we can be in the same room together and we're not going to infect each other. That's, and so everything comes down to what's your level of confidence that the people you're going to be near have been adhering to safer practices. So whether you're going to the grocery store, whether you want to go to a restaurant, whether you want to go to school or work, those are the questions I'm I'm telling people to look at. What steps are being taken to protect everybody in that space? And if you walk into it and it doesn't look like it's a safe thing, then move on. Um, And and if you have, if you want to be with your family, we're approaching the holidays. If you want to be with your family, there are steps one could do to try to understand your risks. For example, test yourself or have your family members tested and, and, and try to improve the confidence that you can actually be together. And, and so there are ways of looking at your boundaries and knowing what would be a safer step. I, I agree. It, it, it's understanding the, the risk-benefit ratio. And, and for that, you need accurate information. So going back to something Ginger said earlier, sort of crowd out the noise and, and the disinformation and find trusted resources where you're getting accurate information. Because without that, you really can't make that assessment. And then, as financial planners always tell you, understand your own risk tolerance. Um, and, and in point of fact, the, the foundation uh, has developed sort of a risk assessment tool so that, that people can uh, understand where, where they're comfortable and where they may not be comfortable in, in taking certain risks. And, and, la- and lastly, th- these are all decisions that, that can be made in conjunction with the expertise of, of their care teams, right? Reaching out and, and uh, having the conversation, getting the accurate information to make a good decision. Now, with fewer patients being treated as an inpatient, some centers are seeing reductions in support for other staff like social workers and dietitians because of their decreased inpatient productivity. And I've seen that there's some concern that the centers may have challenges meeting the CF Foundation guidelines for staffing in the future due to this reduced support. What are your thoughts on that, Dr. Farrow? 
Yeah, we, we, we share the concern and, and actually even before the, the pandemic, uh, there, there has been concern that uh, many programs don't get the resources that are necessary to, to provide the, the care that they, they wish to. Uh, and actually traditionally more so uh, adult programs than pediatric programs. And that's problematic because we've, we've done internal modeling and projections as part of our strategic plan. And we expect that the CF adult population will double over the next 20 years. So if you have programs that are under-resourced today, what's that going to look like when the patient population has, has doubled? So even before the pandemic, we, we started thinking about this and, and we formed a group and we've hired a consultant uh, to help us understand the uh, business aspects of CF care. Now, obviously for, for institutions, there is the mission, right? To, to care for patients. But in addition to that, helping them understand that CF care is not necessarily a money losing proposition. And, and we have evidence that would suggest that it's not. Uh, and in addition, helping our care center directors, program directors, manage up, know, know the language of hospital administrators and be able to speak that language and understand it when, when they're being spoken to and, and manage up. So those are all things that, that we actually started prior to the pandemic. Now, the sands have been shifting uh, constantly, basically on a daily basis. So it's, it's hard to get a read right now but we continue to, to work with this group. And actually, we, we hope that very shortly, we'll be able to have some material to made available to our care center directors to help them make the case for continued support of the, of the CF team. Perfect, thank you so very much for discussing that and what the future will hopefully, hopefully look like. I don't think we have any other questions for now. So I'd like to thank everyone for joining us for this webinar. And I'd like to especially thank um, Dr. Flume, Dr. Farrow, and Ginger Birnbaum for their participation and sharing their expertise and time. Thank you so much.